What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. <laughs> What's a multiverse? Get her out of here. Penny gets her first exposure to the multiverse when her geeky friends take her to a comic book shop in that scene from The Big Bang Theory, a TV show that revels in its references to the frontiers of physics. Comic books and superhero movies are where most folks get their information about the multiverse. That is, the idea that the cosmos we perceive is just one of a myriad of universes. In a new book titled The Allure of the Multiverse, Physicist Paul Halpern explains that the concept is much more than a comic book plot twist. He traces how scientists and philosophers have explored the possibilities of multiple conceptions of the multiverse over the course of centuries. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science intersects with fiction. Join me and my co-host, science fiction author Dominica Fetaplace, as we analyze the allure of the multiverse with Paul Halpern. Regular listeners to the Fiction Science Podcast know that we've visited the multiverse multiple times with the likes of Brian Greene and Michio Kaku, two physicists who specialize in string theory and have written lots of books for general audiences about their theoretical frontiers. Paul Halpern is also a physicist, and he's also written plenty of books, but he takes a different perspective when it comes to the multiverse. In his book, The Allure of the Multiverse, Paul lays out the case for and against the various hypotheses and provides a historical perspective that includes philosophical wonderings from Leibniz in the 18th century, Nietzsche in the 19th century, and Dr. Strange, the comic book Sorcerer Supreme in the 21st century. Why do scientists even bother with the multiverse? When Dominica Fetaplace and I chatted with Paul over Zoom, one of the themes that came through loud and clear is that some elements of quantum physics and cosmology just don't add up unless some sort of multiverse concept comes into play, but that it's devilishly difficult to find the evidence to support any of those concepts. We began the conversation by asking Paul, what inspired him to write about the allure of the multiverse? I've been always interested in science fiction from back when I was a kid, and I read a lot of novels and stories about other worlds, what-if stories, uh, stories about time travel and parallel universes. And I also read some nonfiction by, for example, George Gamow, a One, Two, Three, Infinity, that talks about higher dimensions and that inspired me in part to go into physics. And in physics, I looked at Einstein's general theory of relativity, which has so many different solutions, very weird solutions. The Big Bang solution is the most famous, uh, which is very uh, steady and goes expands in equally in all directions. But there are also chaotic solutions that expand in a couple directions, contract in some directions. And, and do really weird things. So I came to realize that the set of solutions to Einstein's relativity is this huge jumble of possibilities. And I learned about theories by physicists such as John Wheeler that maybe the beginning of the universe was a jumble of possibilities. And over time, that jumble somehow 
was weeded out into the very steady, boring universe we have today in terms of expansion. This book discusses at length how the multiverse theory might be incorporated into quantum mechanics and also into cosmology. Can you explain what makes the multiverse so alluring to these two different fields? Well, the allure of the multiverse is twofold. The general public has an appreciation of what it thinks is the multiverse, which in popular conception tends to be answering the question, what if? What if I took a different path in life? What if I chose a different career? What if I moved to a different city? What if I had a relationship with a different person? And we wonder about all these possibilities. For physicists, we don't really look so much on a personal scale or a human scale, but instead we look at some extremes. We look at the quantum extreme, which is the very small, and the cosmological extreme, which is the very large. And there are multiverse theories in both of those areas. In the quantum multiverse idea proposed by Hugh Everett, the quantum landscape has a uh, array of states, quantum states, which in the standard model collapse upon measurement down to one value. But in Hugh Everett's model proposed in the 1950s called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, this array stays around, it, it's, it stays intact. And rather an experimenter trying to measure the array, their consciousness bifurcates into many different possibilities. So if you were measuring an electron in an array of states and you took the measurement, you your consciousness would experience all the different possibilities for the result. So one version of you might see the electron one centimeter to the right of a mark, the other might see it one centimeter to the left of the mark, and neither branch would know about the other. In cosmology, in the other extreme, there's an idea of bubble universes, that the Big Bang is not alone, but rather there are multiple universes that expand, and some of them contract very quickly, some of them expand so quickly that structure cannot be formed. So there's this array of bubble universes, and that model is often called eternal inflation. Paul, I've written about a number of the concepts that you explain in the book, uh, ranging from uh, the observer effect to supersymmetry to bubble universes to the ekpyrotic universe. But it seems as if there's not that much new that's been proposed in the past few years. Am I getting that wrong? Or could it be that cosmologists and quantum physicists have run out of new ideas? Well, there are, there are variations of the older cosmologies. And then there's some interesting ideas such as Neil Turek and uh, his collaborators proposed an idea for trying to explain the CPT uh, conundrum. And which CPT is, char is? Charge parity and time. And that uh, it, it seems that uh, charge and parity is not conserved for all processes. Some weak processes do not conserve these and uh, we knew back in the 1950s that parity is not conserved. Now, let me define the terms. Parity is mirror image symmetry, and charge symmetry means if you replace a positive particle with a negative particle, and it used to be thought that if you replace a positive particle with a negative particle and then look at its image in the mirror, you would go back to 
the exact same process. It would be an equivalent process. And now we find that that in, in some circumstances, this symmetry is also broken, and along with a parity symmetry itself. And that is equivalent to the arrow of time symmetry being broken. So uh, Neil Turek and his colleagues came up with an idea in which the Big Bang is not a starting point, but rather a bifurcation between two universes, one that runs forward in time and the other goes backward in time. And because you have this symmetry in time, then you don't have to violate the CP symmetry because you have processes going back in time, processes going forward in time. We're quite a uh, a far-reaching hypothesis, and uh, you would need to see some proof of this, but there are some you know new ideas and theory that are being proposed from time to time. And I think one of the themes of your book is just how hard it would be to prove or gather evidence even that a particular hypothesis is the case in in our universe. Uh, in fact, some people have said, well, we're not really going to be pursuing this anymore because there's nothing that we can prove about it. And so it's maybe it's not even really science. Uh, do you see any promising frontiers that might point to the provability of uh, things having to do with the multiverse? Well, the argument against even considering multiverse models is the lack of observational evidence. However, uh, there are many new tools in science that could be used to, to probe what happened at the beginning of you know, our universe, you know, right after the Big Bang. For example, more detailed uh, mappings of the cosmic microwave background radiation, including a mapping of the polarization of light. Apparently, the polarization uh, gives more clues as to what went on uh, as just looking at the temperature map alone. Uh, so some researchers are hoping to find in polarization signals uh, evidence of bubble universe collisions in the early universe. So that would mean a neighboring universe colliding with our universe and leaving a scar in the CMB. So there have been some searches for this. So far, not successful, but researchers are still pressing on to try to see if they can find evidence for scars in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And another exciting avenue is uh, gravitational wave probes of the early universe might reveal some evidence of interaction with other uh, universes. And finally, um, there's a whole uh, burgeoning area of simulating cosmology and looking to see you know, what, what models suggest for, for example, in the inflation or universe, do the models suggest the production of other universes? And that wouldn't be experimental proof, but that would uh, provide an important clue as to whether or not you can have you know, our universe with what we believe is an initial state of ultra-rapid expansion called inflation without having other neighboring universes. You know, we, we would be able to uh, rule out certain possibilities, perhaps through simulation. 
I know that there have been a number of disappointments in full starts. Uh, for example, uh, you mentioned primordial gravitational waves, and, and I remember the BICEP2 uh, results at one time. People thought this was going to be a smoking gun for verifying that inflation is the way that our universe got its start, and it turned out that it it really wasn't the case that there were other ways to explain that data. And people had been hoping to find evidence of supersymmetric particles or gravitons at the Large Hadron Collider. So far, there hasn't, they, they found the Higgs boson. That's a big plus. But in terms of finding the new physics, they haven't gotten there yet. Is there a sense of kind of disappointment or a sense that Mother Nature is just deciding to stick with the program and not reveal any any new cards? I tend to be an optimist, and I look at the history of physics, and there's so many things that started with false starts. Uh, for example, in the 1930s, Fritz Wicke proposed the idea of dark matter to explain why galactic clusters are stable, and no one believed him, and the subject was dropped until Vera Rubin and Kent Ford picked it up with their surveys of the peripheries of galaxies. And then suddenly everybody believed in dark matter practically. And we have black holes, which took time to find uh, observational evidence of those. And uh, originally they were considered far-flung uh, theories, hypotheses. And then you have uh, you know, the search for gravitational waves, which took many, many decades and a lot of people had given up already, but you had people like Ray Weiss, who started in the 1960s and kept pursuing gravitational waves through, you know, eventually through the LIGO project, and eventually was rewarded with great results, you know, many, many decades later and the Nobel Prize. So there are things where it takes decades until you get uh, good results. So um, we have to be patient sometimes with theoretical physics and its predictions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the book, you uh, touch upon the mysteries surrounding dark matter and dark energy. You just mentioned dark matter. Are there potential developments in the study of the dark side of physics that could shed light on concepts relating to the multiverse? Well, it's interesting. Um, Some time back, there was a proposal uh, using the brain world scenario, which is a little bit like a multiverse because you have two neighboring universes that are separated from ours by a very tiny amount in a higher dimension. And that's supposed to explain the weakness of gravity because gravity leaks from our brain into the bulk, which is a space in between the two brains. And there were some suggestions by um, by various researchers that maybe this influence of the other brain, gravitational influence, could help explain some of these phenomena, which I thought at the time was a very interesting idea. I know it hasn't been verified, but of course, if, and I know a lot of people have given up on these supersymmetric companion particles, but of course, if they were found in in some kind of collider and maybe in the future, they would possibly provide uh, ingredients for dark matter and also suggest that that we have a higher dimensional realm because supersymmetric particles live in at least a 10-dimensional space according a space-time according to theorists. And I just wanted to add when you use the word brain, 
you're using it as B-R-A-N-E for our listeners as short for membrane, not B-R-A-I-N, like the human brain, although there are really a lot of fun, fun possibilities there. Yeah, well, it's hard to wrap one's brain, B-R-A-I-N, around brains, B-R-A-N-E-S, but brains, you're right, brains, in that context, I should say, it's short for membrane, and it's this idea that our universe is on one uh, hyperplane in some sense, uh, and that there's another universe on another hyperplane, and that these are separated you know, from each other by a very small space in a fifth dimension. So weird stuff, but um, you know, it, it provides an interesting explanation for why gravity is weaker than the other forces. It's because all the other forces live on our brain, but gravity leaks into the other brain. So it's a little bit like uh, diluting something in, in, in a fluid versus uh, keeping it intact on, on the surface of, of the fluid. Yeah, that is so wild. But, you know, good thing gravity is so weak. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, right? Well, if gravity were a lot stronger or a lot weaker, then uh, the planets wouldn't form and we wouldn't be here. So we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. So thankful for the strength of gravity the way it is now. You've published numerous popular science books. I'm curious how this one, your latest one, fits in with your previously published work. Well, that's a very interesting question because a lot of times when I write a book, I feel like it, it brings me back to some of the other books. For example, I wrote a book some years ago, The Great Beyond, which is a history of higher dimensions, and I explored... Uh, some of the characters involved in some of the proposals that there are dimensions beyond the ordinary three plus time. So that, you know, that brought me back. And one of my first books, The Cyclical Serpent Explores Cosmic Cycles, that was well before um, some of the newer cyclical proposals, such as um, Steinhardt, Turok's uh, Pyrotic Universe or Cyclical Universe proposal, and Roger Penrose's conformal cyclic cosmology proposal. So I didn't mention those in those book in that book because it was well in before those proposals. But I've continued to maintain an interest in the idea of a cyclical universe. There's uh, a part in the book that you talk about time travel. Time travel to the past might be possible using wormholes. I'm like fascinated by this because I'm a science fiction writer. Could you tell us more about how we might travel to the past? Well, the idea of traversable wormholes was proposed by uh, Michael Morris, Kip Thorne, and their colleagues back in the late 1980s. And uh, this was in answer to a question that was pondered by Carl Sagan, of all people, in writing a science fiction novel, Contact. And Sagan wanted to make his character later played in the movie famously by Jodie Foster, uh, lead character be able to travel to other stars very quickly. And Sagan knew that black holes were not traversable. If you go into a black hole, you would get what's called today spaghettified. You'd be crushed in, in uh, one direction and stretched in the other directions. Uh, so, uh, so that wouldn't be very pleasant. You'd be irradiated, you'd be accelerated, it would be a lethal journey and very unpleasant. But, uh, you know, uh, Morrison Thorne came up with 
a proposal, theoretical proposal for a solution of general relativity that's similar to the idea of a black hole transportation system, but instead it's traversable wormholes that would connect up with either other parts of this universe or perhaps other sheets of another universe. And uh, the only dilemma would be that you would need an incredible amount of material to put together these things. You would need galaxy size worth of material, uh, which nobody has today. So you'd have to imagine a future civilization or some natural process doing it. And then you also need uh, something called exotic matter, which is a material of negative mass. Uh, but if you had these things, it's hypothetically possible you could produce a wormhole. And then in a subsequent paper, these authors and others showed that you can accelerate one of the ends of the wormhole, which is called a mouth. And if you accelerate it relative to the other mouth, then you can uh, create a special relativity effect in which if you travel into one mouth and go out the other mouth, you would travel backward in time and in theory, visit the past. So that created a whole flurry of interest in time travel and also uh, brought up the question of whether or not uh, time travel paradoxes, like the idea that you go back in time and prevent your parents from meeting each other, um, that that's you know, a variation of what's called the grandfather paradox, if those would prevent backward time travel. So that's an open question right now, whether or not backward time travel is even hypothetically possible. Another big question has to do with the nature of consciousness, and I know that you touch upon that in, in the book uh, as it relates, for example, to our perception of time's flow. I'd love to hear your thoughts about some of the edgier ideas on that front. For example, the role of the observer in quantum mechanics or the idea that time is more of a mental construct than a physical property of the universe. And I've also wondered whether our ability to consider alternate timelines is a neurological trait that humans acquired as a survival mechanism and ended up putting it uh, to good use speculating about the multiverse? That's a great question. And it is true. I'm not a neuroscientist by any means, but it is true that humans evolved with the capability of pondering what if, pondering alternative scenarios. And that's put to good use whenever a grandmaster plays chess and is looking many, many moves ahead and sees all these alternative scenarios in his or her brain and kind of says, hey, wait a minute, if I move this pawn, then this will happen. If I move my rook, this will happen. And we do that all the time. And it is part of a survival mechanism because you know we want to know that if we go out into a forest and we, you know, it's after dark and we take the wrong path. Uh, we can imagine, you know, a scenario which would not be very good to us, you know, encountering wild animals or something like that. So we like to anticipate what might happen uh, in the future. And so it's possible that our quest for alternative universes and, and before that, the idea of multiple worlds and even back to people like Leibniz, who imagined, you know, he imagined a deity pondering in his mind the best of all possible worlds, what would be the ideal world, what would be not so good. And uh, this is famously 
uh, satirized in the in the novel Candide by Voltaire, who imagined this character Pangloss, saying, "Okay, anything that happens is all for the best in this best of all possible worlds." Well, this whole idea of which world is better, which world is worse, this is something people think about a lot, and uh, it, it inspires notions like the multiverse, where we imagine what would have happened if the universe developed differently, what would have happened if Earth's history was different, and uh, it's a very popular question for us and could very well stem from our survival instincts in terms of planning. Part of this book gets into science fictional depictions of the multiverse, like the work of Ray Bradbury, Kim Stanley Robinson, Marvel Universe. I'm curious to know what are your some of your favorite science fictional representations of the multiverse and who are some of your favorite sci-fi authors? I grew up being a great fan of Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, and, uh, and, and many others. And I, I really like uh, Larry Niven's story, All the Myriad Ways, in which somebody has access to uh, all these alternative histories and what happens there. I like All You Zombies by uh, Robert Heinlein, which imagines somebody going back in time and so ending up becoming their own parent. Ray Bradbury's A Sound of Thunder is a, is a classic. That's one of my favorite stories. I like Philip K. Dick's. The Man in the High Castle, which is about what would have happened if 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 the Allies lost World War II and what would the world be like. Uh, so there's so many stories out there that that sort of anticipate the idea of the multiverse that are great stories. Are there any representations that come close to what scientists who are who are working on multiverse theory would agree with, or would that be a, a too boring of a movie or a book? Uh, there must be some, I, I would imagine, some science fiction stories out there that ponder this idea of bubble universes, where you would have other uh, versions of the Big Bang happening in other universes. Uh, but I don't know of any in particular. These stories like, you know, A Sound of Thunder and so forth, imagine what would happen if if backward time travel were perfected, creating an alternative timeline. And... As mentioned, we don't know if backward time travel is even possible, and if it is possible, it's completely hypothetical whether or not we would create an alternative timeline if we tried to change history. That, of course, is picked up in uh, the film Back to the Future, classic film, which Marty goes back in time and um, changes the way his parents meet. Luckily, they do meet, otherwise he wouldn't be there. But his parents end up being very different in the future, and he's launched into an alternative timeline in which his parents are are far cooler than in the original timeline. Uh, but there's there would be no way for us to test that because if we went back in time and changed history and found ourselves in an alternative timeline, you know how could we prove you know that we were in some original timeline? Um, you know, presumably. Uh, we'd be different, and there'd be no way of proving proving this. So uh, it remains a speculation and science fiction, and doesn't really have so much to do with what scientists are talking about when they talk about the multiverse today. You can break down time travel stories into two 
genres, I think. One is where you go back in time and you can change the past. The other is where you go back in time and somehow you are stuck in the traditional timeline. No matter what you do, you can't change it. And I think Stephen Hawking referred to that, the chronology protection conjecture. Where do you come down on that? Could you change the past theoretically? Uh, what, what's more interesting to you? I think there are, there are various options for time travel. I think Stephen Hawking in the chronology protection conjecture, which is a bit of a tongue twister, suggested that you know backward time travel would be impossible. Um, and he even planned a party, a time traveler's party, and sent out invitations and said, if anyone from the future wants to visit us, they can come to this party. And you don't have to RSVP, but no one came to that party. So he said, well, look, if there are all these people in the future traveling through time, why aren't they visiting us? Why aren't they here? Which is an interesting argument. Um, but then the other two possibilities are, yes, you can change the past and have this branching timelines. But then a third possibility is the idea of closed time-like loops, that when you go back in time, that everything you do is consistent with the present. And you try to change things and you find out well, that already happened. And that is a theme in in the film uh, 12 Monkeys, where a time traveler from a fictional 21st century, where there's a fictional pandemic, not the real pandemic, but a fictional pandemic, goes back in time to the 1990s and uh, tries to prevent the pandemic and uh, in some ways, but everything transpires and there's no way that he can change the past you know, everything that he does ends up being consistent with things in the future, uh, which is a really interesting idea. Uh, and there are science fiction writers like the great Connie Willis who talk about time being uh, very uh, solid, very immovable, and that if you try to go back in time to change history, you'd be forced into a different place or prevented from doing anything from changing history because time resists any kind of change. I love Connie Willis. I sort of suspect she may have time traveled herself. She's a great person. I saw her once at a science fiction convention, and she uh, not only is a great science fiction writer, but also is really was really into knitting, and she gave a, a knitting demonstration first. It was really amusing, but a uh, wonderful person and uh, very imaginative. We're wondering, what are you working on for your next book? Uh, well, I'm working on trying to get the word out about this book, The Allure of the Multiverse. And I, I don't have time to to work on another book right now, but I have some ideas, but they're kind of in in early stages. So I the, the quick answer is in this universe, I'm not working on another book right now, but it's possible that other versions of me are hard at work. So I plan to to contact them at some point and see what they come up with. Uh, any other recommendations for our listeners, books that you like, TV shows that you like, other podcasts? Well, I want to recommend some TV shows, movies. The TV show Loki uh, is great, a Marvel show, um, and uh, really, it plays with ideas of the multiverse, not scientific ideas, but it's a very fun show. And films that I've seen recently uh, include Everything Everywhere All at Once, which has some interesting ideas 
and the Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse movies are a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, there's there's been a, a, a great uh, increase of interest in multiverse movies, TV shows, and so forth, which uh, is a blessing and a curse for science because uh, some people accuse scientists of trying to delve into science fiction if they even mention the term multiverse. So that's not science, that's science fiction. But the type of science that people are doing when they talk about the multiverse is is real science. Uh, it's far-reaching science, but it's real science. Scientists are not saying, hey, maybe we can meet another Spider-Man and you know, and attack Kingpin that way or something like that. There's a lot, a big gap between the fun science fiction-y version of the multiverse and the real science version of the multiverse. That being said, I love the fact that you're taking a deep dive into a subject that most people know about primarily through superhero comic books and movies. Do you think that there's room in the market for a comic book that tells the actual scientific story of the multiverse? Uh, well, comic books can uh, convey a lot of information, educational information, and I think there would be a great story about Hugh Everett and confronting Niels Bohr and saying uh, to this this hallowed figure, this this eminent figure, you know, well, I have this different idea, Professor Bohr, I have this idea of parallel universes, and Niels Bohr's reaction to that was just to, almost to completely ignore it. Well. I would imagine some kind of graphic comic book with that story, which would be very inspiring. You know, it'd be kind of a David versus Goliath story of the young upstart coming up with with new ideas. So that would be interesting. I, I guess there could be a, a comic book about eternal inflation and all the different versions of the universe. So, you know, comic books are, you know, fun ways to convey information. So that is an excellent idea. Well, in one of the universes that make up the multiverse, I'm sure Paul Halpern is working on that comic book series right now. And I'll look forward in one of those universes to reading that. Thank you so much for being on Fiction Science and talking about the allure of the multiverse, Paul. And uh, good luck with the book. And I know it'll do well. Thank you, Alan and Dominica. This has been a great pleasure. Thanks to Paul Halpern and to Katherine Robertson and Kristen Kim at Achette Book Group for setting up the interview. Check out my blog item at cosmiclog.com to learn more about the allure of the multiverse, plus more about bubble universes, parallel universes, and other alluring variants of the multiverse. You'll also find links to related podcasts featuring physicists Brian Green and Michio Kaku, while you're online, check out DominicaFetaPlace.com. Don't worry about the spelling, just follow the link from Cosmic Log. Thanks to James Emley for performing the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time... This is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.